during the past week or ten days, we've witnessed or heard a lot about testing. People tested to the absolute limit, some of them are here, who found themselves stranded and had to embark on long, grueling journeys home. Aircrafts tested to show that they can fly through a cloud of volcanic ash without any irregularities. And this morning, as we come to our final leg of the journey into the unknown with Abraham, at least the final leg for now, the central theme is testing. In fact, Genesis chapter 2, in many translations, is actually headed, Abraham tested. It's page 22 in the Pew Bibles, uh, if you would like to follow along. Uh, If you were here two weeks ago, you'll remember that Genesis 21 was in part incredibly painful for Abraham. His other son, Ishmael, had been banished to the desert, but after a near-death experience, God had spared the boy. And Genesis 22 begins with these three words, some time later. Now, exactly how long later is unknown. Although the highly respected Jewish historian Josephus reckons that Isaac was about 25 years old whenever this well-known incident takes place. And we'll come back to that later. Now, one of the problems with reading Genesis 22 in one go is that the details are reasonably familiar. We all know the end from the beginning. We know what happens in verses 11 and 12. And therefore it can be very hard for us to fully enter into this story. It can be really hard for us to actually sense and comprehend the raw emotions that must have been experienced by Abraham certainly and Isaac increasingly. Strip it all back And this is relatively offensive. There is nothing attractive, nothing appealing, nothing palatable about the idea of human sacrifice. And sacrificing your own flesh and blood, that's maybe even more unacceptable. But to add a further level of difficulty and intrigue to this moment is the discovery it's the realization that God in fact orders it why would a God who is love do that verse 1 some time later God tested Abraham now this is not Abraham's first test Throughout this journey, Abraham had found himself and his faith being tested at various stages. And sometimes he passed, and sometimes he didn't. Early part of chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, Abraham passes a whole bunch of tests. Second part of chapter 12, chapter 16, chapter 20, he doesn't. He fails. But here's the critical issue. Via every test, as a result of every test, out of the back of every test, he grows. Abraham's faith is refined and his spiritual muscle is constantly being strengthened. You see, it's not just about whether you pass or fail the inevitable tests that will come your way. 
It's primarily about what you learn in light of and through the experience. Let me say that again because this is so important. It's not just whether you pass or fail the inevitable testing that will come your way. It's primarily about, primarily about what you learn in light of and through the experience. And testing is part and parcel of life. And in terms of the Christian life, testing is unavoidable. Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to us? It's a perfectly understandable question to ask. It's a question I've heard asked a lot this week. Why? It's a perfectly understandable question to ask whenever your faith is being stretched to the absolute limit, to breaking point. But one of the only answers that I can offer based on God's word is that testing is a key aspect of the discipleship process. It goes with the territory. And there is always a definite purpose to it, a definite purpose behind it. And so James' writing in the New Testament says this, the testing of your faith develops or it produces perseverance. That is why God tests He tests to strengthen us, to fortify our faith, to deepen our commitment. Never for the sake of it. There is always a reason to it. There's always a big picture. As Stuart Briscoe comments, faith is matured through the experience of stressful testing in much the same way as the cardiovascular system is strengthened through exercise and the muscles are developed by pumping iron. We read on, God said to Abraham, is what the text says, Abraham, and Abraham replies, here I am. And then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. Now the nature of this test is startling, it's breathtaking. But before I look at it specifically, I realize that there are some of you, some of you who are here, some who will be listening to this by recording, some who are connected to this church, and they find themselves in the midst of tests to their faith that could only be described as extreme. Almost overpowering, virtually unbearable. And I in no way want to minimize the sheer scale of the testing that you're experiencing. But I do want to say, based on these moments in Genesis 22, that severe testing has been and continues to be part of many people's faith development and faith journey. It was for Abraham. And I guarantee you it will be for many of us. And Abraham must have wondered, what is going on here? His son, his only son is what the text says, although some of you may want to question God on that point. The son he loved, the son he and Sarah had longed for, had waited for, and had now had, was about to be taken away from them in such a disturbing and violent manner. I mean, the surrounding people groups, those who worshipped foreign gods, did sick stuff like this. But the thought of Yahweh condoning this practice here, now, 
with his friend. Surely that's unimaginable. Verse 3 starts. Early the next morning. Now, you see as I finish verse 2 and then I read verse 3, my mind goes into overdrive. Why is there nothing between those two verses? Why is there no recorded comeback from Abraham? Why is there no protest, no questioning, no bargaining? I mean, back in Genesis chapter 18, whenever Abraham heard that God was going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham pleads with God to spare all the people if he can find 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10 righteous people living in that city. But here, with his own son's life hanging in the balance There's no pleading. Instead, he cuts up enough wood for the required task and he sets off with his two servants and Isaac for the place that God told him about. And I simply find that unbelievable. And in chapter 21, Abraham had experienced deep distress at having to send Ishmael away. Verse 11 of chapter 21 makes that absolutely clear. But here again, Abraham is back at the place where God is asking him to relive a similar nightmare. Only this time, it's much worse. And yet, there's no mention of any distress. There's no pleading. There's no bargaining. Clearly, Something else was going on. And we discover exactly what was going on in a moment. Plus further on in the Bible we're given another insight into Abraham's frame of mind during these moments. And we're going to get there soon. But for now back to the story. Verse 4. On the third day Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Three days of walking. It's 45 miles they have covered. You can only imagine what they've been discussing. But then the four of them stop, five including the donkey. But only Abraham and Isaac can embark on the final leg of the journey. But then comes a phrase. Then comes the phrase that I don't think I've ever fully appreciated or noticed before. And it's the second half of verse 5. Here's what Abraham says. We will worship And get this. And then we will come back. Now how is that going to happen? How how is that going to happen? Given what Abraham's just been instructed to do. Given what Abraham has just agreed to do on Mount Moriah. I.e. sacrifice his son. How are they both going to walk back down this mountain and rejoin their servants? What's going on in Abraham's head? What is going on with his faith? And in trying to make sense of this, because as I say, I don't know if I fully registered this before. But in trying to make sense of this, I need to listen to the writer of the Hebrews explanation. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice, get this, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. You see, it seems that Abraham was somehow convinced that God was going to step in. 
He was absolutely sure God's going to do something here. Abraham believed that if he had to go through with this, God was going to still fulfill his promises through Isaac. That Abraham's descendants would be a great nation and that they would become the source of a blessing for all peoples. And it doesn't take Inspector Morse or Sherlock Holmes to realize that for those promises to be fulfilled, you need a living, breathing Isaac. His life had to be preserved. A dead Isaac was an unthinkable conclusion to this story in so many ways. And therefore we can only conclude that Abraham believed that God had the power to raise Isaac from the dead if necessary. Which is exactly what the writer of Hebrews implies. I find that fascinating. Here's the reason I find that fascinating. Because up to this point in history nobody had been raised from the dead. Or at least there's no record of it. Someone's raised from the dead in 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 4, 2 Kings 13, Mark 5, Luke 7, John 11, John 20. That's all later on. Abraham had no previous examples to refer to. But somehow, somehow, according to Hebrews, Abraham believed God had the power to do the unfeasible. The question is, does that remove then the horror of these moments? I don't think it does. See, with every step closer to the place of sacrifice, surely Abraham's heart must have almost been exploding out of his chest. But what this discovery does do for me, this discovery that Abraham believed God could do the impossible, what this does for me is this. It helps me begin to come to terms with a dad who was intent on following through with the unimaginable, sacrificing his own son. You see, Abraham knows beyond understanding that God will find a way to bring life even in the scenario of death. And as I thought about that during the week, I found it incredibly challenging because it reveals the amazing faith, the incredible trust hope that Abraham had in his God and it also confirms his commitment to total obedience why would God ask Abraham to do that that's not the issue Abraham never appears to ask the obvious question I know I would have asked it Abraham on the other hand simply obeys because you see he believes In a God who is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, faithful. Whose ways are not our ways. Who is the God of the impossible. And therefore Abraham knew that God was in this. And that God was working out his purposes in this. And that God would see him through this. Now, where do you find yourself this morning? What are you going through? Do you believe God's in it? Do you believe God's going to see you through it? And this belief isn't just head knowledge. It's not simple mental assent. This is fleshed out. It's put into practice. It's in action. It's in visible form. Abraham's faith was not some dead orthodoxy. It was not some lifeless belief system. His faith was not expressed in empty words that meant nothing or cost him nothing. 
Abraham's faith was deep, it was real, it was genuine, and therefore it was backed up by, it was reinforced by, it was confirmed by his actions. His setting out with Isaac and two servants. The cutting up of wood, the traveling for three days, the going the last leg with Isaac, the building of an altar, the arranging of the wood, the binding of Isaac, the raising of the knife. Actions, multiple actions that speak so much louder than empty words. Here was a man whose faith in God was tangible. You could touch it. You could smell it. You could see it. Which is exactly why James the Apostle writes these words in response to this and by way of explanation. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous? Why? For what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Faith not accompanied by action is dead. And that is what I find deeply challenging. Someone has written that uh, Abraham realized that when we have everything except God, we have nothing. And when we have nothing except God, we have everything. The question is, do I believe that? And do my actions reveal it? Abraham, in faith, was willing to surrender everything because his faith was strong enough, it was robust enough to know my God is in control. My God is going to see me and my family through this testing time. And even though what he's doing here, even though what he is going through makes absolutely no sense, makes no sense, he somehow believed that actually all things do work together for good whenever your faith is in an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, faithful God. One commentator makes this point. Abraham reminds believers in all generations that faith in a faithful God will stretch them to the limits of their physical, emotional, social, intellectual, and spiritual beings, but the stretching will serve only to expand their capacity to know God and in the knowing to discover the vast potential of life lived by faith. I don't know if there's anyone here this morning and you feel stretched and you feel tested. I know I've spent a week with a family who feel tested and stretched to the limit. And God tested Abraham, and Abraham came through. But before we look very quickly at how this played out, let me ask you a question. How do you think Isaac felt in all of this? Remember, Isaac's about 25. If he's not 25, he's certainly a young man. What was going on in his head as he walked those 45 miles? What was going on in his head as he took those final steps with his dad? Isaac did pass a comment in verse 7. You'll see it there. He asks a question regarding the lack of sacrifice. Abraham's reply was interesting, vague, but interesting. Clearly it did satisfy Isaac up to a point. But what must have been going on in verse 8? I don't think we'll ever get our heads around this moment. 
I know I won't. Abraham must have had to try to explain to Isaac, son, you're going to be the sacrifice. And the reason he must have had to explain that to Isaac is it says he binds him and he places him on the altar. And as he does that, the reality and the shock of what was happening must have registered with this boy. Now Abraham's an old guy. He's well over a hundred. Isaac could easily have resisted. He could easily have refused to go through with this. He could have ran off and yet he didn't. Or at least there's no record of any opposition. He permitted himself to be bound. As he lay on the altar, he watched as his dad raised the knife and prepared to take his life. And if Abraham's faith and obedience is marked and it's impressive and it's visible, then what about Isaac's? See, for me, Abraham was tested by God, but so was his son. And they both came through. Let's read what actually happened. Verses 10 to 12, nearly through. Verses 10 to 12. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied once again. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from him or from me your son, your only son. God took Abraham and Isaac right to the wire. It was impeccable divine timing. But what God discovers, the text actually says, God says, now I know that Abraham fears God. Now, when it says Abraham fears God, it doesn't mean now I know, Abraham, you're scared of me. That's not what it's about. Now I know, Abraham, that you know what to be reverent before me is. You know what to be wholeheartedly committed to me is. Now, verse 12 does raise a wee bit of a problem for us. I don't know if you picked up on this. It raises a problem for many people. Did God not know what Abraham would do? Did he only discover at that point whenever Abraham raised the knife and was about to sacrifice his son, is that when God discovered what Abraham would do? It's a good question. But if we believe in an all-knowing, all-seeing God, a phrase, a description that I've used a number of times this morning, then we appear to accept and affirm that God did know. And I actually believe God did know. 1 Chronicles 28.9 says this, For the Lord searches all hearts. Get this, he understands the intent of every thought. God knew the intent of Abraham's heart during that three-day journey. God knew what Abraham would do. Therefore, God doesn't discover anything new or additional that he didn't know before, but Abraham sure does. Now you know, Abraham, that you're fully committed, that you truly fear me. Abraham was tested and came through. He discovered so much about the reality of his faith via this experience. And that leaves for me a real heart-searching question, and it's this. What am I discovering about my faith in the midst of the tests that I'm going through? God's not going to discover anything new or different about me. But I sure am.
Scriptura. Nothing takes an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God by surprise. But sometimes we find ourselves surprised and learning loads in the thick of life-stretching experiences. God knows, but what he wants to do is help you and I discover. We all know where the story goes from here. Aram is found, and it's sacrificed instead of Isaac. God really did provide. And then God takes the opportunity to remind Abraham, Abraham, listen, my plans haven't changed. Verses 17 to 18, approximately 50 years ago now, God gave Abraham those promises first time round. God here, 50 years later, approximately repeats them. What a faithful God have I. And for Abraham, this was a journey into the unknown, but for God, there was nothing unknown about it. For Abraham, the adventures had come and gone. The tests had stretched and deepened his faith, none more so than this one. But I guarantee you, Abraham wouldn't have swapped this journey for anything. It wasn't easy. There were times when you thought he had blown it. There were high moments. There were low points. There were expressions of amazing faith. And there were examples of compromise and twisted thinking. And there were painful experiences. And there were deep disappointments. And there was joy. And there was unreserved laughter. This is Abraham's story. And it would almost certainly characterize every single one of our stories with the same all-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing, faithful God. And as I finish, there's probably some people thinking, hang on a minute, David, should you not make a connection between this chapter and what we're about to do in a moment? I mean, is Isaac not a type of suffering son who willingly submitted himself to his father's will? And in Abraham, do we not catch a glimpse, in fact, more than a glimpse, do we not catch a beautiful and moving picture of a father who did not spare his own son? And is the ram not a brilliant example of a substitute dying in the place of another? And the answer is, yes, I should make the connection, but I just have. But you know, I don't want us, as we leave later this morning, to lose sight of Abraham. Or to lose sight of what took place on that different hill that stands as one of the greatest demonstrations of one man's faith in a faithful God. You see, Abraham stood the test and now in a sense it's over to us. And in the midst of the inevitable testing, the question is, will our faith be made complete by what we do?